Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 15 to 23. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him, stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And, the, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth Haran, and another company turned toward the border that looked down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Father, I pray as we read your word today, as we, as we hear it, but we study it, as we understand it, and we understand you more, Father, that you would speak to us, guide us, and that we would give you the glory and praise, knowing who you are and who we are as your people in you. Father, we give this time to you. May you bless it and bless us, and may you be pleased with what we give to you in your name. Amen. Well, good morning again. Yeah, I agree, Kurt. Good morning. <laughs> good morning again. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good to have you all here. Good to see everybody, to have us as a church, as a church family, to come together to hear his word. Um, last week, we looked at uh, the beginning of chapter 13. So Saul has been anointed as king of Israel, and, and he sends everybody home, minus 3,000 soldiers who stay with him in his hometown of Gibeah. And his son, Jonathan, forces Saul's hand by attacking a garrison of Philistines. And so he's just hanging out, 3,000 men, and then doing nothing, which is against God's call for Saul as king to go and drive out the Philistines. But he's doing nothing, seemingly, and so Jonathan gets restless, and he forces Saul's hand by attacking the Philistines, who then in response gather a large army to attack Israel, to teach them a lesson, to keep these slaves in tow. And when the army of Israel sees this, because Saul calls everybody back, like, all right, Philistines are coming, let's all get together again. They see this army of the Philistines and many of the Israelites run away in fear they hide in caves, tombs, wells, and even cross the Jordan in order to flee the wrath of the Philistines. And seeing his army disintegrating before his eyes, Saul then takes the matters into his own hands and gives an offering to the Lord, an act which is allowed only by a priest. He oversteps his bounds, disobeys God, because... He trusts in the size of his army more than he trusts in the Lord who made him king. And because of his disobedience, God then removes the kingdom from Saul's descendants. He's still the king, 
but God's presence is removed from him, and the kingdom will then be given to a man after God's own choosing, a man after God's own heart. You see, the book of Samuel, and we'll see this throughout First and Second Samuel, it's a book of contrast. Last week, we looked at the contrast between the hope and trust of Saul, who put his hope and his trust in himself. He put it in the size of his army. He put it in the size of his intellect. How am I going to be able to handle this? And Samuel, the high priest, who puts his hope and trust in the Lord and not in himself. This week, though, there's a contrast made between the faith of Saul and the faith of Jonathan, his son. And the difference between the focus of their faith forces us today to wrestle then with the focus of our own faith. In other words, how do we respond to Jonathan's belief that, and this is a quote, and we'll get there, that nothing can hinder the Lord to save. Our passage today then opens with, and I just read it, a detailed description of Israel's weakness. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's not a description of their strength. It's their weakness against the might of the Philistines. So there's a good reason for the Israelite army to actually flee from the Philistines. It makes sense from at least a human standard and a human point of view. There's, there's an understanding why they're hiding in caves, why they're running across the Jordan to flee from the battle. The Philistines have a huge army. The Israelites only have a few thousand. The Philistines have chariots. The Israelites have no chariots. This is a modern-day equivalent of foot soldiers going to war against a battalion of tanks. It just doesn't make sense. And so they flee and they run. And then on top of it, Israel has only two swords, swords in the whole army. Everyone else is equipped with sharpened mattocks. I had to look that up. I'm not a farmer. I don't know what that is. It's actually a pickaxe. Um, uh, axes, sickles, those things that you cut down with wheat. Okay, so none of that is intended to be used in battle, but that's all they had. And so they sharpen them and they prepare for war. Nothing about the Israelite army cries out, fear us. We will take you down. The Philistines' lack of fear actually is seen not only in the amount of soldiers that they have and the chariots that they have, but that they send out raiding parties west, north, and east. We'll find out they can't go south because that's where the, Phil the Israelites are and there's a giant valley between them. So they just basically go every other direction and ravage the countryside in order to feed their army. And Israel is powerless to prevent it. Israel is weak. The Philistines are strong. And then we come to the story of Jonathan, who once again takes the initiative. So we're going to take sections of chapter 14. We're going to read basically about four or five verses at a time. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 14. Verses 1 through 5, take out your Bibles, your Bible apps, turn with me to there. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, and then just keep your hand there because we're going to keep coming back to it, um, to this chapter. 
So the army is gathered together. The army is fleeing. Part of the army is fleeing, I guess you should say. And then you have this story of Jonathan. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah in the, home, in, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were, there, who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahiatub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. We'll get there, okay? So just wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other, Sina. The one crag rose to the north in the front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Okay, so let's just bring this all. Jonathan gets the crazy idea to attack an entire garrison with only himself and his armor bearer. I don't know how big the garrison was, at least 20 men, probably, I don't know, between 50 to 100, who knows. But you got two guys who say, "Eh, let's go attack this garrison. So twice we're told that no one knew that Jonathan had left. First stating that Jonathan didn't tell his dad of his plan, which says a lot about um, Jonathan's confidence in Saul's approval of such a crazy mission, because it is a crazy mission. And then the second, that the people didn't know that he was gone, which tells us that Israel had incompetent lookouts and outposts, which is a really bad thing in time of war. Again, it's just emphasizing the weakness of Israel. Jonathan's dilemma, his real dilemma though, is how do do I get to the Philistine garrison across the valley? The two armies are separated by about two to three miles But in between the two armies is a valley with a rocky slope going up one side, rocky slope going up the other. One is called Slippery, the other one is called Thorny. That's what those two names mean. So in other words, neither of them are really inviting in order to have the armies attack each other. It's it's ridiculous. One's really steep and slippery, the other one is full of thorns. It makes no sense. And yet Jonathan says hey, let's go fight. And his armor bearer goes, okay. I mean, he's just following, following his master. So now we get to 6 through 10. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So we get a glimpse of Jonathan's heart and determination. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or saving by few. See, Jonathan's boldness comes from his confidence and faith in the Lord to accomplish such a crazy mission. But it's not a boldness that demands from the Lord. 
In other words, well, I'm going to go over there and God bless my fight. You know, we, we do that today, right? Hey, I want to go do this. God, I'm going to do this and this is a good thing, but I want you to bless it. See, that's not what, that's not what Jonathan does. He doesn't demand God to bless his mission as if he's commanding God to make the attack successful. Instead, he's offering himself to be used by God. That's totally different. Where Saul and the army are sitting on one side of the valley, slowly falling apart, not seeking or even working to find a way to engage the Philistines in battle, Jonathan says, perhaps the Lord will use us today to save Israel. And so he seeks a sign from God to guide his next steps. If you're hearing some correlation with the story of Gideon, you probably should. Okay, it's very similar, and you can go back and look at, at Gideon's life in the book of Judges. And so he seeks God's guidance. What, what is God going to do? If the Philistines, so they're going to walk out to the edge of the valley where they're at, show themselves to the garrison, to the outpost of the Philistines. And when the Philistines see us, to his armor bearer, they see us, and they say, hey, you just stay there, we'll come to you. Well, they're not going to come across. You've got slippery and thorny stuff going on in front of you. They're just mocking. They're just mocking the Israelites. If they say, stay there, we'll come to you, well, then that's God's sign to us, no, we shouldn't go over to the garrison. But if they tell us to come over to them, hey, why don't you guys come over here and fight? Ha, ha, ha. And then Jonathan says, Jonathan says, and the Lord has given them into our hands. I mean, talk about confidence. And so they show themselves to the Philistines. This is verse 11 through 15. And so both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. You hear the mocking tone in their response to him. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan, his armor bearer, and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. In other words, come up to us and we're going we're gonna to teach you a lesson. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him and, be, and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, with, within, as it were, half a furrow's length of an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and, garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. The Philistines make the mistake of arrogantly calling these two Israelite soldiers to come over to their side. Why don't you come and fight us? After all, why should a whole garrison, garrison of armed-to-the-teeth soldiers be afraid of two little soldiers, one with a sword and one with probably a, 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 a little axe? They have no fear. But it's the last mistake that they made because Jonathan strikes down 20 of them with his armor bearer, finishing the job behind him. So he knocks them down. The armor bearer 
kills them right behind it. Talk about violent. Jonathan's bold actions were such a, sh- a shock to the Philistines. Yes, it throws them into a great panic. But it was God's actions that caused the whole army to be thrown into a tizzy because Jonathan's attack is accompanied by an earthquake. That wasn't, this is not poetic language that is being used. Like they were in such a panic, it was like the earth shook. No, the, there was an earthquake with it, which is why it panicked the entire army. What's going on? So while all of this is happening, then we have to ask the question, what's going on across the valley in the Israelite camp. Jonathan has taken the initiative. He's defeating Israelite after Israelite after Israelite. The whole Israelite army, or uh, sorry, Philistine after Philistine. He's not finding his own people. It's Philistine after Philistine after Philistine. And the whole Philistine army is being thrown into a panic. So what's happening across the valley? Well, that's the rest of the chapter, 16 through 23. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah, of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. When Saul said to the people, then Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult of the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. Do you hear the connection with the story of Gideon when he just blows the trumpets and the army um, defeats itself? They kill one another. Verse 21, now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. So the lookouts may have been incompetent about whether Jonathan was gone or not, but they couldn't help but see the reality that the Philistine, this huge Philistine army is in disarray. They're scattering in all directions. And it's interesting to note um, a couple of things that are happening during this time. First, Saul is seeking the Lord's command. Well, I mean, it looks like he's see, or seeking the Lord's will. He, he, he looks like he's going to God to go, what do you want me to do? You see, Paul, uh, Saul had a priest with him, but if you notice, remember that long line of names that I read? It's not Samuel, the high priest of Israel. The priest that's with Saul is of the rejected priestly line of Levi, which is evidence of how far Saul has fallen spiritually. This line of Eli has been rejected by God for their disobedience. And yet that's who Saul goes to. In fact, it's the only line that Saul can go to because the correct priestly line of Samuel has rejected Saul as king. Saul has a priest with him, but this priest is a rejected priest. Saul looks, 
has the look of spiritual legitimacy, but it's in reality only a mask. Second, the Philistine army becomes panic precisely as the priest is seeking the will of God for Saul. So seeing this, so the Saul or the, the priest is probably uh, casting lots, trying to figure out what, okay, so this stuff is going on here over in the Philistine camp. Lord, what do you want us to do? What should we do? And he's trying to figure it out. In the middle of this ritual, Saul stops the priest and says, remove your hand. In other words, just stop even seeking God. I can I can see what's going on here. It's getting more and more crazy over there. And so I'm going to take matters into my own hand. He has no need to seek God because he sees an opportunity to rout the Philistines on his own. Now compare that to his son, Jonathan, and how Jonathan handled the battle, where Jonathan was bold. He's seeking to be used by God. Saul is timid. He's standing back. He's only taking action, actually, when it suits his timing and his purpose. Where Jonathan sought the will of God, trusting that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving his people, whether that's by two soldiers or by a thousand soldiers, Saul gives the impression of seeking God, but he only trusts in himself, really, to win the day. Jonathan's boldness is evidence of his confidence in the Lord, Saul's timidity is evidence of his confidence in himself. So if it's true that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving his people, then we have to wrestle with the reality of our own hearts and our own lives. Do we follow the example of Jonathan? Do we live a life of boldness which cries out to everyone around us that we trust in the Lord? Now remember, this is not a just hey, I want to do that. I'm going to go do it. Okay, I'm here, God. Now bless me. That's not what Jonathan did. He didn't go into battle and while he's trying to kill people, say, God, bless my battle. Bless my... No, he says beforehand, this is what I want to do. God, is this what you want from me? So for us, do we follow the example of Jonathan? Do we live a life of boldness? which cries out to everyone around us that we trust in the Lord to save us? Do we view the battles of our life through an understanding that if nothing can hinder the Lord from saving his people, then whether we're called by him to fight or we're called by him to stay on the other side of the valley and wait, that we will trust in him to fight for us. When COVID hit, what was that, like 30 years ago? Isn't that kind of what it feels like, right? When COVID hit, I mean, we all really wrestled with just life. Things changed drastically in a very quick time. And in that moment, and they're still there. You can walk into my office and see it. In fact, it's on the front door. I got to a point about three weeks in where I just printed off, God is sovereign about seven or eight times, cut them up, and I pasted them all over my office, everywhere that I, I was, the front of my door, on my desk, behind me, at the water cooler that I use, I mean, all over the place, because I had to remind myself that this is something I have no control over, but I trust that God is sovereign. 
I trust that he is powerful enough. He's got this. This is not too big for him. And so even though right now he's asking us to wait, I can trust that he's in control. I can trust that he knows what he's doing. I could trust and have a life of bold faith in God that even though I have no idea what tomorrow brings, let alone a year from now, I could trust that God is sovereign. I trust that he's going to do what he's going to do, that, that what, do, what do I need to do as a child of God is to be faithful and trust in him in the circumstances of life, especially the ones that are out of my control, and trust that he's going to do his will, that he's going to get the glory in the end. If COVID revealed anything to us, or just life in general reveals anything to us, is that we are weak. We cannot control what other people do. Heck, we, we have trouble controlling what we do. But we believe in the one who is strong enough to do anything. Do we view the battles of our life through that lens, whether it's a health crisis, a relationship crisis, if it's just getting out of bed in the morning, whatever it may be, that battle, as small or as big as it is, do we view that battle as God's people to say nothing can hinder the Lord? Nothing. We're going to look at this a couple, uh, a couple of times. What, what does nothing mean? Nothing. Nothing can hinder the Lord. God's going to do His will. God is going to reveal Himself. God is going to make His name glorious, as the Bible say, says. He's going to do that. Nothing can hinder God from accomplishing what He desires. The question is, is are we going to go along with Him? even if it's standing on the other side of the valley and waiting for him to tell us to go. Do we have the heart of Jonathan? Or do we respond to the circumstances of life with a trust in our own power and our own might? Do we follow the example of Saul? Do we live a life of timidity, which cries out to everyone around us that our confidence is, is in ourselves, not in the Lord? Well, I'm just going to wait I'm just going to wait and see, you know, like, okay, I see this is happening, but, but I'm not going to seek God's will. I'm not going to see what he wants. I would even say going and just jumping in to do something that has the, the face and the mask of boldness, but it's actually timidity because you're not willing to stop and listen and ask God. You're just going to jump into it. It's a, it's a faux boldness. It's a false boldness that relies upon us and not upon the Lord. Is that how we respond? Do we have the heart of Saul? Do we wear a mask of spirituality, but in reality we lean on our own understanding and our own power and our own abilities to be able to do what we want to have get done? I'm uncomfortable in this, so I'm going to change it. Maybe God is making us uncomfortable so that we trust in Him. Okay, so let's just say Thanksgiving, family, it can be difficult, right? And so a lot of times I've had conversations with people through Thanksgiving, well, just in general, with people like, Lord, 
give me patience. And you know the old saying, watch what you ask for? Because he's not going to give you patience. He's going to put you in a situation that's going to force you to be patient. So when we say, Lord, reveal your will to me, he's going to reveal it. And it might be, you know what? You just need to sit back and let me work. And you need to let me do what I'm going to do. Or maybe he's saying, okay, go do this. Well, how? I didn't ask to tell you how. I just said, just walk over here and go do this and trust that I'm going to do work through you. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now, this doesn't mean that we should live a life of ignorance, just sitting back, waiting for God to move because we're not actually asking him. We're just drinking our margaritas and sitting on a hammock and, and then we see God move. And we're like, oh, okay, we'll just go over there. It's like, it's an active waiting. Does that make sense? It's an active waiting. It's not trusting in, in our minds, in our understanding. Well, this is, this is a good thing, so this must be what God wants. Instead, it's a... Uh, God, what do you want? And then I go. It's an active waiting. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Jonathan's example is one of boldness. He carefully assessed the situation. And he also trusted in God. And he sought the will of God. So there just might be things in life just in general, right? God, what what are you looking at? looking for me, from me today? Who are you putting in my path as your child to to speak the truth of the gospel to, to reach out to my neighbors, to my family, to my friends who don't know you? How are you calling me to be bold? Step out of my comfort zone, forcing me to be faithful when I'm not necessarily ready to be faithful. Does that make sense? Like, we just hold back. Maybe it's, doing things in our life in order to be more obedient to God, to get rid of things, to get rid of friends who are maybe bad influences on our life, who are asking us to disobey. Maybe it's stopping to watch Facebook, get off of social media. I mean, we could just keep going on the list, getting rid of the computer, be Jurassic and get rid of the computer if it's a problem or video games or the TV. Are we willing to do those things if that is what God is calling us to do or are we just sitting back waiting for God to move in a sense and, oh, okay, now I'll go, God, because you basically slapped me in the face. I'm going to have to go. But let's take it a step further. Let's take it with the deal with eternity. If it's true that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving his people, if it's true that nothing can hinder Jesus Christ from saving those who believe in him, then there is nothing that his chi- as his child that, that can keep us from him. Sometimes we, even as God's te- uh, people, we tend to think like, well, I, I hope God is happy with me. I hope, I hope today that I did enough to please God. And in one sense, those are good questions, but a lot of times behind those questions is, is doubt. 
what can I do or not do today that's going to make God angry at me and he's going to remove me from his family? What is going to keep me from being his child? What is going to remove me from being his adopted child? There's, there's nothing, though, that can hinder or remove those who believe from being his child. Jonathan knew this. If we are God's people and he has promised to take care of us, then if he says, Jonathan, go over there and fight that entire garrison with just two of you, I'm going to do it. Why? Because God promised to save and I'm his child. And I'm going to stand with confidence that God's going to do what he says he's going to do. So what does God say for us today as his children? He says in Romans chapter 8, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this is Paul, and I love the way that Paul writes, because he says, okay, whether life life or death can't prevent us from being a child of God, if we believe, we're not going to be removed from the family of God, there's no angels, there's no heavenly beings, there's no earthly rulers who can remove us from being a part of the family of God. There's nothing that can happen right now. There's nothing that can happen in the future that will remove us from God. There's no power on on earth, no matter how big. Nothing is going to, none of that is going to separate us. Oh, and just in case I miss something, nothing in all of creation, which is everything but God, can remove us from the family of God from being his son, from being his daughter. That's what it means to be in the love of God, to have that eternal life in Christ, through Christ. When we believe, when we confess, we are immediately made a child of God and nothing can remove us from the family of God. Which is why we can stand in confidence and boldness. That we can go do what God is calling us to do because our identity is not found in the things of this earth. It's not found in the, what we do or how much money we make. Our identity is found in Christ. And if nothing can remove my identity in Christ, then I could be bold all I want. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what happens in my life. My life can be taken. Who cares? Well, I mean, you guys know what I mean. I mean, I don't want to die today, but whether my life is taken or not, I stand firm on my faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because he says, nothing, nothing's going to take you. Nothing can remove you. No sin, no government, no church, no parent, no friend, nothing. No circumstance, nothing can separate us from the love of God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. Or let's just go to Jesus. John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. This is Jesus is speaking to the Jews, and he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So he's speaking of people here. Everyone that the Father gives to the Son will come to the Son, and whoever comes to me, 
I will never cast out. If you come to me, if you put your faith in me, if you trust me, nothing will hinder me from saving you. Nothing. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Where does our confidence lie? How do we live our life? How do we deal with circumstances of life? Good and bad, everything in between. Do we have the heart of Saul, whose confidence is himself, his confidence is in the size of his army, his confidence is, is just waiting for something to happen? Or do we, do we have the boldness of Jonathan to step out in faith, trusting God to work through these circumstances, to work through us? Where does your confidence lie in this life, but where does your confidence lie in eternal life? If it's with yourself, you are not a child of God. But if it's with Christ, if it's with Christ, then nothing has hindered him from saving you. I mean, how beautiful is that? How awesome is that? I know, I know my own heart. I know my failings. I know my sin. I know the deep, dark places of my heart. And you know what? God knows them better. And that has not hindered him from saving me. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But holy cow, I love it. It's freeing. It frees me to pick up a sword and fight for him wherever he wants me to go. But it also frees me to sit back when he says, ah, just wait, Mark, just wait. Trust that I'm going to get you through COVID. Trust. Trust that you just be faithful. Keep seeking me. Keep seeking my will. Trust that I'm going to get you through this circumstance of life. Trust that I'm going to get you through this health scare. Trust that I'm going to get you through today because you want to lock your children in the closet. They're driving you crazy. And all the parents say, amen. I will give you the strength to make it through this day. Just be faithful to me. And in your faithfulness, that is boldness. Where does our eternal and earthly confidence lie? If it's not in Christ, then we're lost. If it's with Christ then we can be certain to know that nothing will hinder him from saving us. Father, I pray for us as your people that we would stand firm on this truth, that we would, that we would be Jonathan's and not Saul's, that we would know your truth, we would know who you are, that we would stand in confidence, whether that is your will is for us to sit back and wait or to be bold and to move forward. 
the Father, that in that and through that you will be given the glory. Four times in this passage, Father, it speaks of you saving your people. You are given the glory, not Saul, not Jonathan, not the armor bearer. You, Father, you are the one who works in us and through us. And so as your people, Father, as we live life, as we walk out of this building, that we would be faithful that we would stand in confidence, not in ourselves, but in you, knowing that nothing can remove us from being your child. And in that, Father, we can go with boldness to do your will and your work. May that be true for us, Father, as your people. May we remember that. May you remind us of that constantly this week, Father, as we strive to live for you and be faithful to you. Let it all be for your glory and not our own. We ask this in your name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we sing our final song?